Okay, if you open that insert there, inside. This is my name forever. And in full disclosure, it was Friday of this week where I decided to preach this passage. It was not in our original plan as we laid it out for the whole going through the Old Testament, kind of the, the highlights, not because it's not important. It was because it's a little bit intimidating for a preacher, this passage. It's a little overwhelming because there's a word in here that is so expansive, it's easier just to pass it by. It is uh, it's four short Hebrew letters, yod Hey, Vav, hey. Four letters that make up the Hebrew word for the name of God. As it comes down to us, we often say it Yahweh. But it is expansive. In fact, we got, it struck me as we were doing the statement of faith, this is, you know, dozens and dozens of the smartest minds of the 17th century trying to get language around the fullness of this name. And so, you know, just and this is the modernized version, guys. He is the only fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. He has complete sovereign dominion over them, to do th- through them and for them and upon him whatever he pleases. And all his sight are things open and manifest. It took years to create the Westminster Confession of super smart people. Like, it's trying to put human language, which is limited by nature, to an unlimited God who stepped down in and, as Taylor said, speaks baby talk to us in order that we can comprehend him. And so as a preacher, you know what? I just want to move on past this. But I, on Friday, I thought we've we got to look at it. But So please understand this is just scratching the surface, the very slightest scratch of the very surface of the surface of this I am right? And maybe a little bit more disjointed too because we really started thinking about this a couple days ago. But uh, it's, I found this to be immensely helpful for my own self over the years. Not because there's great application from it. It's just this is who God is and this is who God is for us and he walks with us. And it's good to know who God is. I think it was probably in my 30s where I started noticing that the people doing the checkout and the checkout line when I was buying groceries would start saying this. Thank you, sir. Did you find everything you were looking for? And the important word in there for a 30-year-old is sir. Wait, well, sir, wait, wait. Did you not? Do I, do I have something on my face? It makes it look like I have gray hair. What's happening? Why are you calling me sir? And that be, it happens more and more and more. And uh, you might remember that if you're an adult like in here, at some point the people younger than you started calling you sir or ma'am or mister or missus. It's a sign that we are becoming uh, mature. And um, so, we, you know, we've had our, you know, our kids grow up in this church, and because, you know, they all kind of came of age here, there's this natural progression of like, uh, you know, so Liz is here, and, um, you know, Michaela Flack is here. So Liz has known Michaela for a long time. And at some point, Liz is going to say, when she was younger, of course, now she's adult leader in the church, but, uh, Dad, do I call her Michaela or Mrs. Flack? Right? And so Michaela was probably in the position of inviting her into saying, please call me Michaela. Right? And that's what happens, right? That's you're, you're older, you're a mister or a missus, and a kid who's now whatever, 16, 18, 19, 20, was like, hey, do I need to call you Mr. Williams? 
please call me Roger. It's fine, right? You invite. So that's what we taught our kids. Like, call them Mr. and Mrs. until they invite you in to calling them by your name. That's kind of an appropriate respecting the traditions and the folkways and the mores of culture and all that kind of stuff. It's not a moral issue, but it is kind of the way of our culture where you wait until you're invited in to calling somebody by name, and then you have the freedom to call them by name. Here's the amazing thing in the passage we're looking at this morning. God himself invites his people to call him by name. He, that's a That's a definite sign of intimacy. He invites us in to call him by name. And then, if you will, he he dares us to have the imagination or to allow ourselves to have the imagination to comprehend what all that means and to keep exploring it all the days of our life. So the main idea there in red, so you don't miss it, the Lord invites his people to call him by name and he dares them, us, to have or dares us have imagination to match. Here's the story so far. God makes promises to Abraham. He says, I'm going to bless the world through you, namely, that through you one will come, Jesus Christ, a redeemer. He doesn't know it's Jesus yet, but a redeemer who will bless the nations. He makes that promise to Abraham. It cascades through Isaac and through Jacob and then through a series of events because there's a famine. The the descendants of Jacob, also called Israel, Jacob's name was also Israel, end up in Egypt because they were fleeing a famine and they went there to live. They went there for life and over a few hundred years it became a... uh, a place of death for them because the Egyptians were essentially grew in their hostility toward the Israelites and enslaved them. Now, this would have been a type of slavery not known in Western culture where individuals arrogantly and abusively assert what they would consider individual rights over another. But this is sort of state-sanctioned slavery where they, uh, from what I can tell, from the Egyptian government essentially created a work crew out of the Israelite people and kept them in one place called Goshen to make them work for them and produce, you know, material goods for them. And I assume that they kept them in one place because they thought they were keeping them safe. They were keeping Egypt safe from the Israelites. You get to the next section where God brings judgment on them, and he doesn't judge Goshen because that's where his people are. So it backfired, but uh, another cool redemptive reversal. That's not what I'm talking about this morning. But um, So they're in slavery They cry out to God. We saw that last week. God hears from them, and God intends to to deliver the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and he's going to do this through a man named Moses. At this point, Moses does not know this yet. So here we are, Exodus 3. At this point in life, Moses is a shepherd. He's also about 80 years old. God loves to work through people who are not necessarily strong in themselves to highlight his own strength. So if you are feeling weak and discouraged and depressed, good news, that's the kind of people God has used in all of history. So our weakness actually qualifies us to be used by the Lord and to be aware of his presence. Verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, that's called the mountain of God because of what's about to happen. And this is the place probably, which is also later named Mount Sinai, where God, where God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. Verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. So a couple of weeks ago, we talked about this large theological word that signifies an appearance of God in the Old Testament in some concrete form before, he, before the incarnation, before he takes on flesh as Jesus. Now, does anybody who was not here the first service know what that 
word is? Anybody? Come on. Oh, loudly? Anybody? Theophany. Thank you. Got it. A theophany. Um, sometimes you feel like you have to justify your seminary education by bringing people along. It's a theophany. It's just a $64,000 word for God appearing in some form in the Old Testament before he takes on human form as Christ in the incarnation. Uh, Old Testament theologian J.A. Mateer says, a theophany is an accommodation of God to the people. So he can be with them in some form without completely overwhelming them by his holiness. So he reduces himself a little bit. He reduces his appearance so he doesn't fry everybody, okay? And yet, verse 2, he appears in a flame of fire, or literally it would be flames of fire in the bush. If you read through the Bible, you might have noticed that God often appears in fire and in smoke. If you remember when he called Abraham, he gave this covenant promise to Abraham and gave Abraham this vision where God himself walked between the I realize if you weren't here, this is going to sound weird. He walks between the pieces of the cut animals on the, on the path to, to signify, if I don't fulfill my end of the covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to me. I'm going to do it. But what was the vision of God? It was, if you remember, a flame and a smoking fire pot. Flame and smoke. And a lot of people theorize that the smoke is often because it shrouds the, the flame. It, 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 it gives cover to the people. It makes that so people wouldn't be fully explo- exposed to the glory of God. The, the smoke covers it. So he, he appears in fire and smoke to Abraham. If you remember a little bit later in the Ten Commandments, Moses goes up on the mountain and the mountain is shrouded in fire and smoke. And when God leads the people out of Egypt through the Red Sea and in the wilderness, he leads them at night as a pillar of fire and at day as a, well, some of your translations say a pillar of cloud, but it'd be a pillar of smoke, right? Not like a a rain cloud, but a cloud of smoke going up. Again, maybe the day they could see too clearly and God's protecting them from themselves. In Isaiah 6, where Isaiah has this vision of the temple where the angels, the the creatures are crying out, holy, 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 holy. It says in verse 1 that smoke filled the temple. Why did it do that? Probably to save Isaiah's life. To shroud him from that full glory. Same thing in Exodus 40. Protects the people. The, sh- the cloud shrouds the tent of meeting. Same thing in Revelation 15.8 where it says, smoke f- the smoke of God's glory and power fills the temple. So everywhere you have God, you have fire and you have smoke. Except here where you have fire. Now there's another place in the Bible, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, where God appears in a flame of fire without smoke. Full-on glory. No shrouding. Do you know where that is? I'll read it to you. It's Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. Jesus has been crucified, raised from the dead. He ascends to heaven. He sends his spirit. And they, On the day of Pentecost, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and the divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were all filled by the Holy Spirit. This, the tongues of the fire was the Spirit of God. It's the same. So here you have the bush inflamed with fire. You have God in the in night leading them out into the wilderness, a flame of fire, a huge pillar of fire, and at Pentecost you have the Little mini flames of fire, pillars of fire above each person in the Holy Spirit. What does this mean? The one in the bush, the one in the wilderness is the one in us. That's what this is communicating. 
unfettered glory in you by the Holy Spirit. Why do we think about that? It's, well, this is why we're called to use our imaginations, right? He invites us not just to call him by name, but to dares us to have our imaginations get there. But does this mean that the one in the burning bush is the one who dwells in us? That's what this means. How do we, how do we warm up to that? <laughs> we give ourselves to it. We let our imaginations think about that. We reflect on that. We build space in our life to meditate on these realities. We ask him to help us understand that more. This bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Why is that? We'll talk about that in a second. So put a pin in that one. Maybe Moses needs to see this in part, even though, you know, he's on holy ground and all this, because God's about to tell Moses, I'm going to go with you. And Moses needs to see that it's at least that it's, it's possible for this flame that's going to go with me not to consume something. So I, there's a safety factor there. Though it will freak him out a little bit. Okay, verse 3. And Moses said, I'll turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So you got a lot of things going on here, right? you got the the flame that's not consuming, the the bush, that's weird. And Moses turns aside, and God says, Moses! And Moses starts to walk, and God said, don't come. He's like, come here, don't come. What's happening? Holy ground. But there's a flame and it's not burning. What's happening? Mm. Moses doesn't know here. Who knows, right? It's just this overwhelming presence of the holiness of God does stuff. It's mysterious, but it's at least communicating that, you know, there's this compulsion of God to call to Moses and Moses to move toward it. I mean, we're designed for that, but since the broken covenant with Adam, since the entrance of sin into the world, something has to be done because the presence of God is holy and it consumes sin. That's problematic for people like Moses and me and you. And Moses hides his face. We don't know if he had to, but maybe it's just good intuition on his part. Uh, not sure. Verse 7. I'm going to read this sort of how Moses would have heard this. There's a lot of um, putting God's name, God's person in the prominent place in the verses which is related back to the end of chapter 2. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come up to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Right? So he says, I have come down to deliver them. Now, Moses at this point is probably saying, awesome. Yay, God. So thankful. We've been groaning, right? They were in chapter 2. They're groaning and crying out. And then they had to wait. This is 80 years later. 
We've been groaning. We've been enslaved. It's been hard. These Egyptians are taskmasters. They're far more powerful than us. They they hold all the keys of power. We are weak. It's like we saw last week. It's like we have two broken arms. All we can do is groan. Thank you that you, God, the all-powerful, are going to deliver us. Thank you that you are going to do this. Awesome. Do it. Verse 10, God says, come, Moses, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, are you sure? No, he didn't say that. But he says this, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And God didn't tell Moses, you're great, man. Just trust yourself. Just believe in yourself. You need better self-esteem. You need to believe you can do it. You believe you can do it, you'll be able to do it. Nope. He says this, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you, that when you have brought the people of, out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Okay. So I have to tell you something. That is a lame sign if I'm a Moses. Here's the sign that after you do it, you'll get come back here. Okay, that's, I, need, I need a sign in the moment. <laughs> Not like it'll work out. This is basically what God is telling Moses. Here's the sign. It'll work out. You'll go before Pharaoh, and he'll let you go, and you'll come back here. And here's the sign that I was with you. You'll be back here. (laughs) Now, Moses is understandably not convinced by this, I think. But uh, here's what's true, though. The Lord anticipates that this is sufficient. My promise to be with you is sufficient to bring courage into your life. I'll be with you, Moses. I will be with you. And then it will work out. I will be with you, and that will give you courage when I'm leading you out of slavery. Now, you may be aware that this kind of phraseology shows up a couple other times in Scripture. Forty years later, God's led them out of slavery. They've been in the wilderness, and he's about to lead them into the promised land. Moses has died. Joshua is the leader. They are fearful because they are going into a land well-equipped with good armies. And they're, you know, the Israelites are a ragtag bunch of former slaves who have no resources except for what the gold that that Egypt gave them. They got no training. They They were brutalized for a couple centuries. They don't know how to live barely, and they're weakened. And they're going into this land that is filled with powerful tribes and and armies. And here's what God says, Joshua 1.9. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That's it. He anticipates that the promise of his withness with them will bring courage to face that thing in their future. And we have pointed out and will always point out that that promised land, Israel, was a placeholder in history, a hyperlink, a foreshadowing of something else. It's foreshadowing the whole earth, and the whole earth is the Lord's. And one day that will be made completely, clearly manifest to everybody. After the resurrection... Jesus sends his disciples out into the whole earth. What does he say to them? Matthew 28, 19. 
Some people refer to this as the Great Commission. As you are going into the whole earth, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you until the end of the age. I'm with you. The one in the bush is the one in your life. His promise to be with Moses and Joshua and the disciples is no less than his promise to dwell in us. Because it's not dependent on us. It's dependent on his, him and his promise. I will be with you to the very end of the age. The picture at Pentecost of the tongues divided of fire, the Holy Spirit, that is, that's the picture of it. Now, I don't know how convincing that was for the disciples. They acted courageously sometimes. But we are the fruit of that promise, right? If, if, if God said to Moses, here's the, here's the sign, here's the sign, you can worship with me out in the mountain after back here, which they did, this is Mount Sinai, when you come back, we are the sign of that promise to the disciples. Disciples of all nations. Like this is 2,000 years ago in a very little tiny spot in the Middle East. And look now, there are billions of people in history who have proclaimed the name of Jesus because this promise of witness is sufficient to bring courage to say the question like, have you heard of Jesus? Would you like life in him? Somebody said that to one person who said it to another, 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 and here we are. All because that promise is sufficient. How do we get there? We let our imagination lead us to, to lean into that reality. What if God were actually with us? What if God were actually with us? Would we fear the same way? Would we have the same level of anxiety? Would we, would we say no to those promptings to, uh, to reach out and love to another person? He's with us. The same one in the, in the bush is the same one in our life. Well, that wasn't completely convincing for Moses. Verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Uh, In the Bible, names have often a much richer meaning than they do to us. Some of us here may not even know what our names mean because in our culture we tend to name kids name meanings on what sounds nice to us. Now, some of you don't, and I like to point out the name meanings when I baptize a kid or baptize an adult, whatever, um, because they've all been whitewashed now and they all mean something good. <laughs> you know, it's just like the, the names, the names uh, uh, all have, have, have a nice twist that we can put on them. Uh, But in the Bible, names were both predictive and descriptive and were more of a a revelation of the person. So when when Moses is asking, what do, what if they say, what's the name of the God who sent me there? He's asking, what if they say, what revelation do you have from this God to prove that he's legit, to prove that you're legit, Moses, that he's really sending us because we're about to rebel against Pharaoh? I don't know about that. There's a, and I want to nerd out for a couple people here. If not, if you haven't read this book, I encourage it. Uh, it's the, the Two Towers by J.R. Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I know it's been like two months, so I uh, haven't done an illustration for Tolkien for a while. 
maybe a month, whatever. Uh, there's this great place, if you remember, I think it was this was in the movie too, where Mary and Pippin uh, meet Treebeard. Remember Treebeard is the ent, he's the tree. He's the personification of, uh, the tree personification of wisdom, old and wise. And Mary and Pippin say, hi, I'm Mary, I'm Pippin, what's your name, right? Um, and here's what Treebeard says. Well, I'm not going to tell you my name. Not yet, at any rate. He speaks very slowly in the movie. So uh, he says, for one thing, it would take a long while. My name is growing all the time. And I've lived a very long time, so my name is like a story. Real names tell you the story of things they belong to in my language. It's a lovely language, but it takes a very long time to say anything in it. Because we do not say anything in it unless it is worth taking a long time to say and a long time to listen to. That's, that's Tolkien actually kind of getting at the essence of what Exodus 3 is getting at. When Moses asks, what if they say, what's your name? What's your story? And God, instead of the infinite God, who's got an infinitely long, broad, massive, and beautiful grand story, trying to communicate this to a very finite person named Moses, says this instead. Tell them I am sent you. I am who I am. Old Testament scholar says uh, this phrase, I am, God says this is my name, I am. I am that I am. It is endlessly satisfying, immediately relevant, and baffling, bafflingly enigmatic. Like we can't just, we can't get to the end of it. That's why I really want to skip over it. That's why the Westminster Confession of Faith is that convoluted language. It's just trying to get human language as something that is expansive. It's related to the Hebrew word to be, to exist. I am. Everywhere, all the time, in all ways. Uh, when... Okay, that word there, it's just the, those four Hebrew letters. We're not even actually sure how it's supposed to be pronounced. Because in Jewish history, that name was so holy that they decided not to uh, enunciate it out loud. We don't know why they decided that. It wasn't commanded in Scripture. I mean, it is odd. God said, call me this. And they said, we're never going to say that. I go, well, okay, not exactly what I said, but call me this. Be like, say, please call me Roger, and you say, nope, never going to do that. Okay. I mean, it's meant to be honoring, right? So I want to honor that. But So they would substitute the word Adonai, and then it comes down in the translation. This may be more than you want to know. But they took the vowels from the word Adonai, put it on the consonants from the word, the, the, the name. And so from that, we get the, the name Yahweh, which that might have been how it was said, but we're not quite sure. Yahweh. In some of your older Bible translations, you will hear Jehovah which is Yehovah, it's German and English together with Yahweh. Anyway, so, uh, but it's the most common word in the Bible. 6,000, 7,000 times. Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. In your Bible, when you see the word Lord, L-O-R-D, capitalized, that is the divine name, Yahweh. So it's just, it's just your English translations honoring that that history of not saying it out loud because that's what was inherited. And Jesus actually picked that up and honored that same history. Kind of. Um, so Yahweh, it's often paired with other words to highlight an aspect of Yahweh. So like Yahweh Nisi, the Lord my banner. 
Yahweh Tzidkenu, the Lord my righteousness. Yahweh Shalom, the Lord my peace. Yahweh Saboah, the Lord of angel armies, the Lord of hosts. Yahweh, there's lots of things. So this is why I just want to say this is just a beginning, okay? Just a beginning. Let this take you further. So I just want to say one thing about this word, Yahweh, I am that I am. Uh, it is communicating at the very least that God alone is independent. He, he is the only independent reality in the universe. Everything else is create, created is dependent on him and created to be dependent on him. Theologians call this the aseity of God, that God alone is complete in and of himself. I'll say, uh, Latin for of himself. Everything else is created to be dependent on him. And when that relationship of dependence is broken, the only thing that can happen, that what must happen is uncreation, is destruction, is death. We love independence as Americans, I think. We, we live by this document called the Declaration of Independence. I'm for it, yay, Declaration of Independence. Be nice. People read it, took it seriously occasionally. Um, well, I totally appreciate it. We don't really have independence. And I don't mean because the government taxes us. We don't have independence because we are, by definition, dependent people. Every single person in this room was dependent on parents in the fertilization process. You're dependent. No, no person is self-generated. God is self-generated. No person. Even if you don't have parents in the future, in some scientific future, we're still dependent on the fertilization process. For years of our life, we're totally vulnerable. The strongest, toughest person, like at two, soft, right? The wealthiest people in the world are totally dependent on the economy, not collapsing. And people saying, this green thing that has a one on it, I, you know, I give that the value of $1. Right? Total economic collapse takes down everybody. You say, what, what if you own property? Well, you're dependent on property rights, right? And on the law enforcing property rights. We are dependent people. We're dependent on air, on water. We're dependent on nourishment. We're dependent on the laws of physics. We are dependent people. Do you notice the flame in the burning bush did not consume the bush? Why? It didn't need the bush for fuel. It was its own source of infinite being and power. It doesn't need the bush to burn. There's no combustion. There's no exothermic process that gives off heat. I think that's probably why Moses can go up on the mountain and receive God in the fire and not get burned. Right? He is of himself. We are not of ourselves. Now, I think this, is, this might be a little nerdy for some of you. I think that's important for the later sacrificial system in that some of the, uh, even critics today will point out, well, the uh, surrounding, you know, religions of the Old Testament, they believe that they had to have sacrifices because the God had to eat. And the gods, the gods consumed the sacrifice. And this is how the Old Testament sacrificial system arose. I just want to say, read Exodus 3. That's clearly, God doesn't need that, right? 
He, he doesn't consume anything. He doesn't need the sacrifices. We need to see the sacrifice because it points to the seriousness of sin and that death is always required. God's communicating that to us. God doesn't need that. He's not nourished by it. Um, God, he's like God doesn't need our obedience. God doesn't need our worship. He doesn't become more God if we worship. He doesn't become more God if we're obedient. He doesn't become uh, he doesn't become more. He doesn't become satisfied by that in some way that he's unsatisfied. It's not good for God that we obey him. It's not good for God that we worship him. It's good for us. Why? Because we are created to be dependent on him, the only independent being there is. I want to say like only independent being in the universe, but that would be too small, right? Because God created the universe, and now he would be inside his philosophical conundrum. How do you speak these expansive things? I don't know. God doesn't need our cooperation. He doesn't need Moses' cooperation. He doesn't need Pharaoh's cooperation. He doesn't need Roger's cooperation or New City Church's or the North American Church's cooperation. In fact, we, we know this, right, because he's going to say at the end of this passage, we're not going to get to it, we're going to skip over it, but he's going to say, Pharaoh will not cooperate with this. Cool, it doesn't change the plan at all. Because Pharaoh's not cooperating. Great, I'm doing it anyway. You know, the, the most powerful person in the world is not cooperating. Check. Okay, next, we're just moving on. Uh, he doesn't need our cooperation. He is, he is the I am. He's not dependent, on, and his plans aren't contingent on us doing what he, he wants us to do. He will do it. I just think sometimes we have to step back and say, God is completely sovereign, and he's going to do what he's going to do with me or without me, with you or without you. But what's he do? He says, why don't you come and join me in giving life to the world? Would you like to join the work of your dad in this? Come on, it's good stuff. Would you like to join it? And so that turns all of the motivation for us to love people and serve and give and evangelize to grace motivation. It's not on you. Like the evangelism of the world is not on you, but you can take part in it. It's so amazing. It's so, it's so freeing and so motivating all at the same time. We saw a good picture of this dependence back in our last sermon series in John 15. It was in the fall sometime, uh, just before Christmas season. John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You're dependent on me. You're designed to be dependent on me like the, the uh, branches are dependent on the vine. Now, somebody might say, well, I can do all kinds of things. I don't even believe in Jesus. What do you mean I can do nothing? I do the grocery shopping for our family. Typically, my route is I go to Castleton, I go to Trader Joe's, I go to Costco, and I come home. Often hit half-price books in there, I have to confess. Um, It's very hard to drive to Castleton and not go by half-price books for some people, hypothetically. So oftentimes, I usually go to to Trader Joe's first, and oftentimes I will get uh, flowers, you know, cut flowers for the table. But I have to do a little calculus in my head. Like how, of this, how hot is it in the car or how cold is it in the car? How, what's the size of my grocery list at Costco? And am I or am I not going to go to half-price books after this? Because if it's too long and it's too hot or it's too cold, I mean, those are cut flowers, right? They're going to look good, but they're going to begin to wilt. If it's super hot, they're going to wilt before I get home and get everything, you know, out of the car. Right? They have a lifespan. They look good for a time, but it's a limited life. Well, sure, you can do something apart from me, Jesus said, but 
It's limited. You're not designed for that. Just like a flower is not designed to be cut. I mean, it looks good, but it's no longer drawing life. So yes, you can do something apart from me for a while, for 10 years, 20, 50, maybe even 70. But actually 70 years is very short in this life, this life that goes on forever. Apart from me, you can do nothing ultimately because we're dependent people and he is the I am. This means for us, this is where I think it's just helpful, the call to follow Jesus is not a burden ultimately. It's what we're made for. We're created for it. I mean, that's rooted in who God is at the center. I am. I am the independent one. You are dependent. Come, lean in and live. Lean on me. Be dependent on me and live. Enjoy. So I see this in myself, and sometimes I, so I'm, I don't want to be critical, but sometimes, boy, I say it's become so fashionable in our world just to complain against God. Who is God? How dare he? Who is God in the Scripture to limit me in what I want to do with my time or my sexuality or my money or the way I think the world should be? Who is he to do that? I am. That's who he is. The only independent one upon whom everything else is completely and utterly dependent. We come to him and he says to us, I am. We don't come to him and tell him, I am. Right? That's who he is. Again, this is just scratching the surface here. He's bigger than we think. He's so much bigger than we think. So how do we understand him? This I am reveals himself to his people. He initiates, right? He create, creation is God initiating with his, with his creation. He's, he creates something out of nothing. He calls Abraham. Abraham's stuck in Ur as a wandering pagan. He says, come, follow me. He initiates. Moses is walking by. He initiates in the, in the burning bush. Moses, come here. Well, no, no, not, not that close. Come here. Yeah. He initiates by taking on human flesh. He initiates, according to 2 Corinthians, by opening our eyes that we may see the glory of God in the face of Christ. He takes initiative with us. And then he makes himself known to us sufficiently for us to relate to him. Instead of telling the whole story that Treebeard would have told, he says this word to Moses, I am, I am. Theologians, and, and Taylor mentioned already, it's like theologians talk about a God bending down like a, a, a dad or a mom bends over a cradle and talks baby talk to a baby whether the baby can understand or not, right? At some point, the kid gets old enough, can understand, like, let's say the, uh, the child is at the age where he or she can understand 300 words in English. I have no idea what the age that is, but let's say it's two years old, I don't know, a precocious child. And so what will happen is if you want to explain something very complicated, like the whole way the digestive system works and how we need fiber in our diet and all this kind of stuff and all this complicated stuff, if you're a medical doctor, you might get down to your child and say this, honey, eat your vegetables. Right? That is, you're not going to explain the whole system of digestion. You're going to say, I need you to eat this carrot. That's what I need you to do, right? You're speaking in a way the child can understand. Because the other stuff's not going to make sense to him or her. You speak, that's what God does in Revelation. He gets, he's infinite God. He's communicating to very finite people in a way we can understand. 
That's what the scripture is. That's what revelation is. So he makes himself known sufficiently for us to relate to him, but that means there's always more of him that we're not understanding. Right? And there's more of him that we won't understand. So in order to illustrate this, maybe poorly, but we'll try it anyway, this is your basic yardstick, 36 inches, yard. Uh, this is the range of human understanding. Let's say this is the range of human understanding of what a human could possibly understand in all our magnanimous finitude about God. The smartest, most spiritual, holy person in the world, like, understands maybe like, uh, let's say, 20 inches of this, right? And, you know, I'm here somewhere like three-eighths of an inch or something, but maybe some of you guys are like two inches or three inches. Like, well, you, you, there's lots, and some of it overlaps, you know, you'd be here and somewhere over here and something that's really wide, and like, here it is. Like, and your goal is like, I want to grow from this three-eighths of an inch all the way out for the whole of my life, this full 30, 32, 36 inches of understanding of God. Isn't that great? Yes. And this is still just the realm of where God reveals his infinite self to finite people because you know what? God is also here and here and here and here and here and in Buenos Aires, far beyond the parameters of this 36 inches. That doesn't mean he doesn't care about us. He reveals himself in a way that we can actually understand. But it does mean there's, because he's the I am, to be, to exist everywhere, at all times and in all ways, there's always far more about him that's true that he hasn't revealed to us because we cannot get it. What do we do then? We embrace it. In fact, in the next section, we're going to see this next week, I think, probably, God, it says God's going to harden Pharaoh's heart so he will not let the people go. And then it says Pharaoh hardens his heart so he will not let the people go. And then it says Pharaoh's heart is hard. So what happened? Does God harden Pharaoh's heart? Is his heart hard or does Pharaoh harden his own heart? Answer, yes. How does that work? It's out here. It's out here. It has to be that way. If we demand, I'm not going to believe that unless it's on this line, we're saying, I will be the size of God. That's an arrogant place to be. It's arrogant. There's all these kinds of things that God's, I'm going to reveal this about myself. It may be beyond your 36 inches of understanding. Maybe about prayer or my sovereignty. It might be about the large swaths in your life that are hard and you do not know why. Some of you right now, some of you have, have been marked for years by things that are in your life that are so hard and you do not know why yet yet. It has not come into your understanding, and I am sorry, and I am sorry. But what do we have? We have a God who does reveal himself to him, uh, himself to us in ways we can understand. We can understand. And it's not to trust him in those places we don't see based on the places we do see. It's not blind faith. It is reasonable trust. It is reasonable trust based on who God is. Some of you, uh, we're doing a, a study of this book, Deeper, by Dane Orland, uh, on Tuesday mornings at 6 a.m., 6 to 7 a.m. in my office. It takes a special person to be awake at 6 a.m. just to talk about theology and this kind of sort of thing. Some of you uh, were willing to do that and able to do that, or some of you show up at least, um, still waking up. But that first Tuesday at 6 a.m., how do you know I was going to be here? Were you going to get up, drive all the way here? It was kind of cold. Did I read the book? Do I remember the book? That was like a couple days ago. Get prepared and come here and risk the fact that Roger was going to be in the building with that building open. You say, well, I need proof of that. 
I'm, I'm going to go Monday morning at 6 a.m. and see if he's there. Monday morning, 6 a.m., I'm not there. Well, how, does, how do I know that he's going to be there tomorrow at 6 a.m.? Sunday morning, not there. Saturday morning, not there. Friday, even the Tuesday before, not there. Is it reasonable to trust that I would be there on the 6 a.m. on the Tuesday morning where I said it would be? It is reasonable to trust if you know me, and I'm not really that trustworthy. And yet everybody showed up at 6 a.m., ready to go, not because of blind faith, but because of reasonable trust. We have a God who reveals himself to us, invites us to call him by name. He says, would you trust me where you see me, where you see me, so that you may trust me where you don't see me. This, by the way, means, because there's always more, that when Ephesians 3.8 says the un, there are unsearchable riches of Christ for us, it means there's always more of Jesus for us to discover. It doesn't mean we're not allowed to search them out. It means we'll never get to the bottom of it. And we, that's an invitation for us to dig in, dig in, dig in, knowing that he's generous based on what we do know about him. Okay, so let's just, we're going to wrap it up here. Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and I am thus to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise, I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Okay, what does God do with all of that I amness, all of that expansiveness that we can barely give language to. He says to Moses, I'm going to deliver my people. My intention is to focus all of that being into deliverance of you. And you know, and we're going to end the same place we did last week, it's not the last time God says this. This was, all, that was, this was preview to what happens later. 2,000 years later. When Jesus Christ himself, God takes initiative again to get another people who were enslaved to sin, you and me. He takes initiative. He steps in in another theophany into human flesh in Jesus. And he lives this life. He lives faithfully before God. And he says in John 8, he says, before Abraham was, I am. I am. I'm not only going to articulate the divine name, I'm going to say it for myself. In the very next verse, the religious leaders try to kill him because they know what he's doing. They know what he's claiming. I am. I have taken all of that, all of that being and focused it in one spot for deliverance again for you. And then he adds things to it. We saw this last week. I am the true vine. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and life. And I am the bread of life. So what we have in communion, we're going to the communion table, is a physical, tangible representation of the reality. We can trust God where we don't see him because in our hands is a picture of what he's already done for us and who he is in the I amness, stepping in and delivering his people. So, if you're in Christ, the table's for you. Taking communion is saying, I want Jesus. I receive and rest on him alone and what he's done for me, not what I've done for him. 
And this, guys, is the fuel for us to trust him in the place we do not see because right in our hands and in our mouth is something we do see and know and understand. So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to invite us to come to the table. The way we do that will be this. We'll go through the outside and grab a piece of uh, bread and either red wine or white grape juice and bring both of those back to your seats. Go outside for both of these sides and uh, bring those back to your seats, and then we'll partake together. Let me uh, pray for us, and then we'll go to the table. Lord Jesus Christ, you, the great I am, I pray that our minds would be open to being open. (laughs) What if we walked for you for like decades? We still have barely scratched the surface of the fullness of who you are and the goodness of who you are and the, the depth of who you are for us. Help our imaginations be expanded to see you, to apprehend you more clearly and to love you more dearly. In Christ's name we pray and now come to the table.